Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Turn our attention now to Tesla. The shares down a little bit more than three and a quarter percent. Here to explain all is Liam Denning. He is our energy, mining, and commodities columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly. And you can, of course, follow him on Twitter at Liam Denning. All right, Liam, uh, Elon Musk manages to put his uh, cherry red uh, Tesla sports car into space aboard the Falcon Heavy rocket. But can he get those Model 3 automobiles into showrooms? Tell us the details. Hi, Pim. Uh, yeah, so obviously on uh, on Tuesday, everyone got very excited about the, um, the Falcon Heavy launch. Um, the issue Tesla has is obviously it's great marketing to put a, a car into space, but what they really need uh, is something a bit more mundane, which is a few hundred thousand Model 3s just sitting on car lots in in the bay area um they're still having problems um getting production of the model three up and on uh, on last night's call um they they didn't give an answer to repeat repeated questions from analysts asking you know so exactly how many are you churning out a week now they they are keeping their targets albeit with uh, a caveat saying that you know these are targets and History has shown that we've struggled to meet them in the past. So it's still, you know, there's still a lot of uncertainty over this question. And, and for a company that has, um, that is still burning cash, this is, this is kind of the key question now. When can they get production of the Model 3 really ramping? So, uh, Liam, last night I showed a video of that rocket, Tesla, uh, the SpaceX rocket uh, shooting up to my eight-year-old son. And he said, Who's Elon Musk? What is this company? And I, I thought, you know, well, it's a car company. It's also a rocket company. It's also a tunnel company. Mm -hmm. It also is a solar company. What is it focusing on and how is it sort of allocating its uh, negative cash flow uh, and its potential borrowings to its, its, its endeavors that sort of give it the sheen of the future, right? I mean, do they give a sense of that? Well, you know, if you take a step back... It's clear that Tesla, you know, Tesla makes fantastic products, you know, such as the Model S. And if you, you only have to look at what's happened to all the other car makers in terms of how much money they're now putting into uh, electrified vehicles to know that, that Tesla has shifted the whole industry. It's basically scared them. Um, so there is that. The, the problem Tesla has is that while the products are uh, generally favorably received and generate a lot of buzz, it's struggling to get, it's struggling to do what a lot of Silicon Valley companies have to do if they're going to become, you know, profitable businesses, and that's to scale. So, you know, Tesla's whole plan has been to uh, sell some very highly priced luxury electric vehicles and then use that momentum and use some of the money from that to then become a mass market player. And where it's struggling is to become a mass market player. And the Model 3 is key to doing that. And, and thus far, it's having real problems 
um, getting to production levels, you know, that it originally talked about, which were like, you know, 500,000 vehicles a year. I mean, right now, um, based on Inside EV's estimates, it's looking like it's producing, I don't know, somewhere between 500 and 1,000 a week, which is, you know, it really needs to be producing 5,000 to 10,000 a week. Liam, uh, who's going to be doing all this? Because I basically am uh, looking at the the higher ranks of Tesla. Uh, John McNeil, uh, who joined in 2015, uh, he was the global sales uh, head of global sales and service. He's mm. uh, leaving. Uh, the uh, former uh, head of business development has left. Uh, who is actually going to be doing all of this work? Um, I mean, um, you know, uh, Elon Musk is a capable guy, and Tesla does have a lot of um, b- brand equity out in the, out on the West Coast. So, you know, I'm sure they will attract whomever they need. But to your point, it's just another red flag. I mean, part of the problem with Tesla is it does have this mystique um, and this cult-like quality that means even, you know, flipped results and, and um, you know, terrible cash burn and missed earnings and all that sort of thing doesn't really affect the stock price too much. But at the same time, there are a lot of red flags. The management turnover, the missed targets. Um, I would say last year's solar City deal looked very questionable to me. Um, you know, this this is this is kind of the balance. There there is always plenty of fodder when Tesla reports results for both bulls and bears, which is why you see the stock not move a great deal, right. even if the results are that are, are terrible. Yeah. Liam Denning, thank you so much for being with us. Liam Denning, energy mining and commodities columnist with Bloomberg Gadfly. We've seen a market rise in benchmark U.S. rates so far this year. Have we just seen the beginning or is this the end? Can we expect this to sort of be the plateau uh, for a couple of months as people reassess their expectations? Here to talk about that with us is Leo Grauhowski, Chief Investment Officer at BNY Mellon Wealth Management, which oversees $238 billion. Uh, He joins us here in our 1130 studios. Leo, where are we with respect to the Treasury yield rise? We do have another 30-year auction today at 1 p.m. Eastern. Uh, There was a lot of weakness yesterday at the 10-year auction. Uh, What's sort of the ceiling for this cycle? Our best guess, and at this point, it's it's an educated guess. Um, We've got a range of three and a quarter percent on the upside for 2018, which we we haven't changed. So that, that was our range going into this year. We still think we could get to a three and a quarter level. Um, this, just to be clear, so yeah. ten-year yields could go to three and a quarter and then stop. We, percent. We, we think so. Okay. We think so. That's our best guess. And again, we're we're that seemed like a, a, a very bearish call a while ago, but not as much this morning at a two eighty-eight. So um, I, I'm amazed, though, at the degree to which the market seems to think that three percent is sort of a magic number, and you know, three percent would trigger a twenty percent decline in the equity market. I, I think. The market is recalibrating, right? January was a recalibration for the equity market to higher earnings. And now we're seeing a market recalibrate to, you know, 40 basis point to 50 basis point increase in the 10-year in the 10-year yield. Okay, so if 3% is not the magic number, have we already passed it? I mean, what when does it start to matter how high treasury yields are uh, with respect to the equity market performance? It it 
it always matters, but it's what's driving the yield higher. Okay, so the, the real driver for um, PE multiples, particularly late stage equity market PE multiples, inflation, right? So I think the market is correct in focusing on inflation, but our work shows that if inflation is in a range of zero to two percent, a market multiple of just over 18 times is is allowable. If inflation moves up to two to four percent, that range historically allowed by the market is still around 17 times earnings. So there is a gradual reduction in the PE multiple allowed by the market as inflation begins to rise. All eyes focused on next week's CPI number, right? That that becomes a, a big number. Um, it looks like it's going to remain below 2% year over year. Um, if we see that perk above 2%, uh, we already have the 10-year break-even tips at a 211, right? That's up, up pretty significantly. I think directionally, you're already seeing PE multiples get questioned. Now, the market today is trading at a multiple of 17.5 times our estimate for this year's earnings. The good news is all of this is happening in the midst of a very, very powerful earnings reporting season, right? We're about 65% of the way through, and 77% of the companies, based on Bloomberg's work, right, are reporting better than expected earnings. Last year at this time, that number was 66%. It looks like we're going to have a 15% year-over-year quarter. And the numbers that we put in place post-tax reform for this year, 150 to 155 for the S&P operating this year, are actually looking like they might be too conservative. So right now, that's not been the focus, but the market's trading at a 17 and a half times multiple on earnings this year that we think may turn out to be conservative. That's not cheap, but it's not overvalued. Leo, uh, I wonder if you could just tell us about your day on Friday. Where were you this on, last Friday when the when the S&P lost 2%? It, you know, in front of, like many, in front of screens. Looking You're in your at, office. Looking at the employment numbers, okay. right? And feeling, feeling the recalibration occur over good news potentially being bad news. What does that feel right. like to a professional such as yourself? You, you immediately fa fast forward to the close, right? Where, where might this close? Where might this go? Because remember, Pim, we've been coming off of an extraordinary period of low volatility. I've talk, I talked about it throughout 2017. It is not normal to have market returns of nearly 20% with volatility. The VIX is now in the headlines every day, right? Last year, heads tilted when you talked about the VIX, and I had to put it in the context of 1% market moves. Last year, we had eight days in the entire year where the market closed up or down 1%. Right? We've more than halved that already this year. So I, I think it's about investor reaction. We yeah, but I'm interested in your reaction because, you know, you're a pro. And your behavior, you know, the behavior of what pros, the, their behavior, it can be different than non-professional investors. And I'm wondering, what did you feel on Friday and then over the weekend when you came in on Monday and we saw that 4% drop in the S&P. What was going through your mind and what was happening? What kind of energy was there in the, in the office where you were? Well, Friday was a day of, of sort of concern and watch, right? Monday was a day of, of action and overreaction, right? And then we, you quickly go into what, what do we do about this? 
right? And so Tuesday morning, we quickly had a call with all of our clients and intermediaries, and we drew three to four times the normal audience for such a call. In mid-December, we had a standard call, Outlook 2018. Well, the call that we hastily arranged on Tuesday morning drew more than three times the audience that we drew in mid-December for a market outlook call. So there, there's definitely a great deal of anxiety. We're looking at a market up 300%, actually 297% from March 9th of 09 through last night's close. There's, there's a lot of profits to be had that investors don't want to see wither away. So what was the main concern? What was the main question? What did you tell them? So much depends on where you're, you know, if you haven't rebalanced a portfolio for a while, right? And you're, you're probably still too overweight equities. And this is a good wake-up call. And is it too late to sell? No. So hold on a second. Yeah. So you actually did not say what everybody is saying out there uh, based on uh, Google searches. You didn't say buy the dip. It, it, it's, oh, it's like, where do you think the market's going? And you hate to answer questions with questions, but where you what's your time horizon? If you're making asset allocation views on a 12 to 18 month forward basis, one of our conclusions was we're closer to a buying opportunity than a selling opportunity, broadly speaking. Okay. However, there's $2.8 trillion sitting on our nation's money market mutual funds, according to the Investment Company Institute. $2.8 trillion. There are a lot of investors who've been waiting for opportunities. Now, if you're waiting for 10 or 20%, our advice is you might not get there. And this was a sell-off that had fundamental underpins, but was exacerbated by technicals. And it did appear to us on Tuesday, right, to be getting overdone. Okay, so you use it as an entry point. If you're sitting on cash, you use it as an entry point. If you haven't rebalanced, though, and you have an equity target that after last year, right, you're, you're up 17 or 18% above your target, is it too late to rebalance and use what's happened this week as a wake-up call? Absolutely not, right? So the yawns that one might normally get around diversification, rebalancing, and I tell you, I'm in front of clients a lot. And throughout last year, some of that gets, uh, gets the donkey nod, and it's time to act. Thanks very much for being with us. Leo Grohowski, he is the Chief Investment Officer for BNY Mellon Wealth Management, helping to manage more than $230 billion. You're driving along, you really feel like you could use a cup of coffee, and instead of going to your phone, you can just hit your dashboard and then go to a store and your coffee will be ready for you. That is a vision among some automakers. And Rick Ruskin joins us now. He's senior manager uh, for online commerce at General Motors, and he joins us here by phone to talk about this program that started in December. So can you please explain to us, what is this uh, in-car e-commerce platform? And how has it been received since it uh, was rolled out in December? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, good morning. So Marketplace is a first-of-its-kind uh, commerce platform that we've built uh, specifically for uh, on-dash interactions and transactions in GM vehicles. Um, and it really gives the connected driver uh, the opportunity for uh, you know, that sort of connected experience with merchants and, and brands that they use and they love. So as you mentioned, think about uh, ordering and paying for uh, your morning cup of coffee uh, with a tap of the dashboard or uh, reserving parking, reserving a hotel room, or even reserving a table at TGI Fridays. Again, all from the dash. 
So, Rick, here's my question. I don't know if you use Waze, but uh, when I've ever used Waze, which is a way to tell you the directions to get somewhere when you're driving, I'm always shocked by the number of Dunkin' Donuts that are highlighted and advertised on the app. And I'm wondering, I imagine Dunkin' Donuts pays Waze a lot of money for that advertising. And I'm wondering, from your perspective, do some of these uh, stores, these brands pay you to be more prominently advertised on the dashboard. Yeah. So first of all, it, it's uh, it, we we are a for-profit company, so we've put together a business model that really works for GM and for our merchant partners. So think of it almost as a media platform, the same way that Waze, you know, first and foremost is about navigation, but they're selling those media placements. We too give our uh, merchant partners an opportunity to, you know build those uh, those experiences uh, and have that presence on the dashboard. But then, you know, like the advertising they, they buy in many different digital, uh, uh, you know, mediums, we're, we're the same. And so they're looking for ways to connect with connected drivers. Rick, I just wonder if we could go through some of the technology partners that you have brought together for this so people can understand that it is a conglomeration of talent that is making this happen. Uh, Seattle area-based uh, Zevo. Now, you've got a lot of veterans there from Microsoft and Amazon. Tell us what Zevo is doing in this partnership. Yeah, absolutely. So um, when you think about the ways that merchants can can bring their content onto the dashboard, what was really critical for us was to find what, what I'll call middleware technology partners that would have that relationship with those merchant partners. They actually bring the content from the merchant partner, templatize it, and safely and securely bring it onto our dashboard in ways that have been sort of first designed and tested by our user experience and driver workload team. So rather than us having a direct relationship with each one of the merchants, we're able to work with Zevo. Uh, and then there's a couple other partners, Psionic Mobile down in Atlanta and Conversable down in Texas, Austin, Texas. Right. Well, I wanted to get to that because the Zevo part of it seems to be all about machine learning technology. Uh, what does conversible uh, add to the picture? Well, so first and foremost, you know, as you look at each one of those partners, um, Conversable uh, was doing a lot of Alexa skill work and uh, Facebook uh, Messenger work for various partners. And what they realized were, there was that these APIs, these uh, you know, connections they had with the various merchants could be applied in a very similar way to marketplace. So what we look to them to do is to bring some of those relationships that they had already established to marketplace. So that's where Conversable, very similarly to Zevo and or Psionic, are tapping into those existing relationships they have. I just want to talk about the experience of it. I mean, is there only a certain limited number of stores that you can access from your dashboard? Can you talk to your dashboard? Is it going to be like uh, Ghost Rider? Uh, or is it all tapping? And how do you make sure that people don't get distracted? Yeah, well, so a lot of great questions in that roll-up. Um, so first, um, the 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 um, uh, I've been working on this platform since day one. So as we started to develop a user experience and testing all, uh, you know, through our driver workload team, you, there is a very limited scope to the number of partners that you would see on the dash at any given time. 
then uh, it's really important to understand this is not about establishing a first-time relationship. This is about expanding a relationship that you might have already, you know, created uh, with a mobile app. So, you know, Dunkin' Donuts is one of our partners. I have a Dunkin' Donuts account. When I link that account to my dashboard, now I'm, I'm seeing stuff that's familiar to me. I'm seeing my recents, my favorites. My payment method is already on file with Dunkin'. So when I go in and I open up Marketplace and I want to order that cup of coffee, well, look, I'm, I'm performing one of the rituals I would in the morning. I'm ordering my favorite, and it really is just a few taps on the dash to get it done. About as simple as changing the radio station. Well, you know what Lisa really wants, Rick, is she wants someone to hand her the coffee in the car I when you push the button. Pick up my kids, that's give it. me groceries. Wants someone to do it all. I think that's called an assistant. But I, I, just a, a question, though, about the payment side of this. Is, is that something that, uh, let's say, J.P. Morgan Chase is involved with, with uh, payments uh, for, for this? Yeah, so where we are currently is that we want the the merchant to remain your merchant of record. Uh, again, safe, safely and securely through a tokenized process, um, you know, from my dashboard through that rig partner that right. I mentioned, like Zevo, over to the merchant. All of the tokens are telling you that, yep, you're, 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 Having an interaction. We gotta, we gotta press, we gotta press the button because we're out of time. I want to thank you very much, uh, Rick Ruskin. He is the senior manager online commerce for General Motors. Just how much will automation change the workforce over the next 15 years? Here to talk about that with us is Karen Harris, Managing Director of Macro Trends at Bain & Company, and she joins us uh, by phone. Karen, thank you so much for being with us. You just uh, released this report that you authored, Labor 2030, The Collision of Demographics, Automation, and Inequality. Um, I want you just to start with automation, since there's been a lot of discussion about whether that will eliminate a lot of jobs and create uh, really a two-tiered society. How much will that come to fruition over the next few decades? Thanks, Lisa. I'm really happy to be here. It is certainly something that we see having a very disruptive effect over the next few decades. We see what's happening right now is the labor force, we still have to start with demographics, even talking about automation, because the question is how that impacts jobs and how that impacts the way we live and work, what we buy. And the labor force is about to experience a very steep deceleration. Uh, even shifting life stages, working later, takes a little of the edge off, right? Living longer, healthier lives, but it doesn't compensate for the fact that the population, the working population is overall shrinking. And uh, in many markets, and in some in some markets, just growing much more slowly, which in the short term will push wages up. And in fact, we're seeing some of that impact today in the markets as the with the increased volatility around expectations of rising interest rates. But that natural process of rising wages will be short circuited, in our view, by automation. Um, and that front end automation, Lisa, to your point, will feel. Buoyant. In our, by our estimates, we see another eight trillion dollars in investment needed to build and deploy that wave of automation, and that surge will temporarily shield workers from the full impact. 
But beneath that surface, um, what Bain has seen is that the majority of workers will feel the impact of automation as either jobs are lost or new jobs that should have been created don't show up or wages struggle to climb past the point where automation alternatives actually become cheaper. And so that sets us up for this ebb and flow where you have a a big wave of automation investments, that feeling of buoyancy and growth. But at the end of that, the full effects of automation laid bare, as many as 20 to 25% of workers may become displaced. And that means incomes become skewed even further towards the top, towards those who are employed. That lack of demand as people are unemployed, that pervasive economic insecurity, that impact on growth is what leads to that boom and bust cycle that we're concerned about. Karen, uh, before we get to uh, Labor 2030, I'm wondering if you could just describe what you believe the world will look like, or indeed your world, our world, will look like in five to seven years. What will the environment be like? And maybe give us some thoughts about what kinds of jobs and what kinds of situations are people most likely to face? Sure, Pam. Thank you. It's It's an interesting, it's a tough question because Part of the challenge we had at Bain in putting this work together is that there are, each of these forces push and pull on each other. Um, it created a dynamic. And so what we see playing out, right, in the short term, we've already, I've already spoken about how wages are going to rise uh, over the next short period of time uh, as the workforce shrinks but that adjustment gets cut off through automation, then we see a rise in new sorts of jobs. Somebody has to program computers to understand AI, right? Artificial intelligence requires exposure to larger and larger volumes of information, for example. And so we could see somebody has to retrofit Let's take the service sector, which is where we think the ripest opportunities are for automation. Uh, Take a restaurant where you could have an automated uh, prep chef, just as an example we're all familiar with, right? Something that does all the chopping so that the chef can do the, the more advanced preparation. Well, if you have two robots chopping onions and celery, they don't necessarily need to work side by side. You could stack them on top of each other, which means you fit out the kitchen. And in fact, in Maine's view, a big chunk of the investments in service sector automation will come from not just the actual robotics and tools themselves, but also from the infrastructure changes that come around that. And that will insulate workers from jobs. So, Pim, to your question, by the early to mid part of the next decade, we could see a very buoyant economy, uh, workers employed in those in the capacity of deploying many of the tools that will then eliminate the job opportunities later on, rising interest rates as we see this capital investment boom. So I think the, the major point and the biggest watch out that at Bain we want businesses to think about is the much, much greater volatility of this next cycle than what we've seen really for the past few decades, even including that global financial crisis. Karen, what's the most irreplaceable type of worker going forward, even with the boom in automation? In other words, how can you guarantee a paycheck going forward, yeah. um, no matter what the automation? Sure. I think there, there are many sectors... Um, I think some of the most important sectors become ones that are around asking the right, we call them the, the sort of the normative questions. 
understanding what people need. It's some of the, it's, ironically, I think some of the more protected sectors, ironic based on the conversations we have today, are not necessarily advanced uh, in, in engineering and coding. In fact, a lot of coding will be automated over the next uh, over the next couple of decades. But in fact, the ability to for, for businesses, for leaders, for um, for workers to understand and delight their customers, understand those customer needs, and really develop the kinds of products that suit them, either at the high end, right? We see more and more customization and, and niche products, but also where people's incomes are constrained, how do we create a better quality of life at a lower cost, uh, and that is, those are the kinds of businesses that, frankly, companies like Hire um, out of China and Huawei have done an excellent job doing. What are the good enough features that really suit markets where income is more constrained? Karen, does increased automation mean that the governments around the world will have to change the way they tax their citizens as work becomes more automated and robots perhaps don't necessarily pay taxes? It's a great, it's a, it's a really critical issue, right? What we see at Bain is certainly the state is, governments are going to likely play a more active and, and uh, involved role in thinking about the markets. Is the answer taxation? Uh, I, I'm not a policy expert. Certainly there are examples of government intervention that have created a lot of positive economic uh, impact for the for outside of those specific programs, the space race, the, the works projects during the depression, um, the, the universal basic education examples where big government investments have paid positive dividends over time. Uh, but there's a, I mean, the reality is with a shrinking pool of workers, changing taxation may not be the answer. Thanks very much. We got to leave it there. Karen Harris is Managing Director, Macro Trends Group of Bain and Company. Check out the report, Labor 2030, The Collision of Demographics, Automation and Inequality. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.